0: Brothers and sisters, I am honored that you would come, because I was fearful that you wouldn't. and I appreciate your attendance very much, even though you being here adds to my nervousness. But I also know the Lord will bless me in this important assignment. I would like to t- first discuss a uh, seldom discussed truth in the Church, namely the fact that going on a mission makes a man more handsome, and I, <laughs> I have been on two missions. And I merely mention my handsomeness in a humble way because I think it is the role of a teacher, which I am proud to call myself, to point out things that are not readily apparent. (laughs) But so that you won't sit and wonder about whether or not I am a good fellow, I would like to also announce that. Now having cleared the air of both being handsome and a good fellow, we can go on and consider the subject at hand, and I am pleased this morning to talk about something which I hold near and dear in my heart i was a missionary in england and there my great facility with the language enabled me <laughs> enabled me to become the greatest average missionary that england ever had and it was while in england that i found out who george durant really was and is and will be because it was there that i came to know the church, that the Church is true, and it was also there that I came to know that, that I had a, something to offer the world, which thing I would never before supposed. But it was glorious to go on a mission. I am so glad that so many of you have been or will go, even among those of you who are sisters. What a blessing it is when a sister who is otherwise unattached is able to go out and serve the Lord on a mission. I don't think I ever conducted a good zone conference, unless there were at least two sisters there. They added the feminine spirit and also gave the elders someone to show off in front of. (laughs) But it was a blessing to me to go on a mission. It was there I met my wife. She was a lady missionary. I kept all the mission rules, but I did have an electrifying handshake. And when I got home, I felt after having known her for so long, and she brought so many people into the church, many of whom I baptized, she got more people to join the church than I did. But I often remind her that I outbaptized her. (laughs) And so, having come home from a mission, she and I were married in the Salt Lake City Temple by Elder Spencer W. Kimball, who was then. One of the Quorum of the Twelve. Of course, we don't ask them to perform our marriages anymore, but that was in the days of yesteryear. And he came to the temple two or three hours late. And I'm sure it was a great imposition on him to come, but what he did there seemed to have worked. And we're so grateful that he was there with us. It's quite a blessing to go to the temple to get married, to kneel there at the altar and get married. It's quite a blessing just to go to the temple It's just a blessing to belong to a Church that knows what temples are for, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the only true and living Church upon the face of the earth with which the Lord is well pleased. What a blessing it is just to be alive and to be here. After coming home from a mission, the government wrote to me. They said they understood I had been a good missionary, and they wondered if I wouldn't be interested in becoming a soldier for two years. And they made me an offer, which I could not refuse. And so for two years I had the glorious privilege of being a soldier in the Army. And I might add that in just two years, with some really good breaks, plus using my talent to the very fullest, I was able to rise to the rank of Private First Class. (laughs) And I merely mention that not to boast, (laughs) but because it's a part of something that happened to me in Korea. I labored there for for a year in that land which came to be as dear to me as the land of my mission. It's a blessing to go in the army. The draft is no longer there, but what a blessing it was to have that thrust upon you. Many things in life that come upon you that you don't want to come upon you turn out to be among the most glorious of all your experiences, and I'm not recommending you volunteer, but it's a joy to serve the country. That's a great country, and it's a joy to serve the Church. I used to work in a service station, and it was just a joy to serve the public. I think I could be happy in a service station again. I wasn't too good on grease jobs, but I was great on windshields. uh, (laughs) The name service station appeals to me. I think it's captured one of the best of all names. And As I uh, was in Korea, I came to love the people there, and I, along with them, my language talents didn't carry over from England to Korea. And so I had to come to a middle language which we shared with them—they not being able to speak English and we not Korean—and therefore we had a middle language whereby we would speak a funny language. Like if I had a real good Jeep and it was running real smooth and it was clean, I would say to my Korean colleague, this, a number one Jeep. And he'd say, ah, number one. And if it was sputting and sputtering and not performing at all well, he might say, number 10. And I would say, ah, number 10. And so we had a scale on which we ranked things. We ranked jeeps and men and all sorts of things. (laughs) And if you were number one, then that was the best. And as we spoke to them in this way and as we worked with them, they used to come onto our compound or our army camp to do work, which we didn't like to do and which they enjoyed doing because they got paid for it. They would come and do this work, and so it worked out well all the way around. And when they'd come onto our army post in the morning, we didn't have sidewalks, we only had paths upon which we went from one building to another. And as we went down these paths, they often became narrow and they were made of dirt. and Just off the path were the grass and the weeds and the rocks. And often as you approached someone coming the other direction, someone had to get off the sidewalk or off the path. And as I had been there a few weeks, I observed that the Koreans were the ones who got off the path. And the American soldiers walked by on the path. And it occurred to me that that was backwards. It seemed to me that this being the land of Korea should be a land in which they went down the path. And we, the Americans, got off the path. And so I made it a practice to do that. It was only a little thing, but I felt good in doing it. And I had to be quick to get off the path because if I wasn't, the Koreans would get off before I had a chance. And so I would jump off as I saw them approaching. And when they saw me off the path, as they passed by, I would say, Yobaseo or Anya Hashemika, both of which I was told were very warm greetings. And as I said those things, they would look over at me and say that back to me. And then as they walked down the path, if they were more than one, they would look at each other and talk. And then they would look back at me and they would smile. And they seemed to be Impressed. Now the land of Korea had just been, uh, had taken to it Christianity. And sometimes these good people became confused between what the Bible said and the way the Christian soldiers. Conducted themselves. And so it was. And after having been there in that land for nearly a year, I went to dinner one night and I was the last one to get to dinner. And in the army, you stand in the line to get to dinner. And I was a long line and I was the last man to get in the line. And when you're the last man to get in the line, there's no use standing in the line. I mean, you just as well get out of the line and go do something else until the line goes down. And so I got out of the line and I joined five of my friends who were seated, seating, seated, seated around a table eating. And as they were around the table eating, They were talking vigorously, and I joined in their conversation, waiting to go when the line went down through the area where I could get my food and thus serve myself. Now I had mentioned that I was a private first class. Had I been a corporal, then a Korean waiter would have gone through the line and got the food much as would happen in a cafe. But that didn't happen to me because I was a private first class, and as I waited for the line to go down I was talking to my friends, not aware of what was going on around me, and then suddenly I felt someone standing at my side. And we interrupted our conversation and I looked up and there was a Korean man about 30 years old who was working in the mess hall as a waiter and he had a lovely tray of food and he was about to put it before me and I put my hand on his wrist so as to be able to stop him and as I did so and while my eyes were upon him and the eyes of all five of my companions were firmly fixed upon him and all was silent he proceeded to push the food forward and then he said to me as he looked down at me I serve you you a number one Christian, and uh, I said uh, nothing, and I'll always hear those words, which was the greatest compliment that's ever been paid to me. I serve you, you a number one Christian. Oh, how I'd like to be that! I think that became one of my goals, just to see if I could become a number one Christian. Now, this man in Korea had supposed that getting off the path was what makes a Christian—and, you know, he wasn't far from being right. But there's another side to that coin, because it isn't enough just to get off paths and be a social do-gooder, because there's something more to it than that. Even though if you leave social, the great social gospel off to the side, then you'll never qualify as a number one Christian. But Christ, although he taught the fact of how we should relate to our fellow men, didn't come to teach that. That was, I think, out on the perimeter of what he came to teach. The thing he came to teach and the thing in which he dealt, and the thing which he came to offer, was cleanliness. He came to make it possible for men and women to become clean. And therefore I suggest that those who sit here The ones who are closest to being number one Christians are those who come closest to being clean and pure, those who have taken advantage of the great law of mercy which Christ came to author author, and who have repented of their sins and who have been baptized and who have received the Holy Ghost and who have thus been redeemed from their sins. And that's what Christ came to do. And when that happens to you, then you qualify, at least on one side of the coin, as a number one quick Christian and it doesn't matter how much social do good in you do if you still live in your sins, because there are some who say that Christ was just came, to, came only to teach how we should relate to our fellow men, and he came to teach us how to get rid of our sins, and that's the purpose of why he came, and I stand on my feet and boldly testify he came to do that, and unless we take a, advantage of that, then we are not taking advantage of what Christ came to offer, and thus we're far from number one Christians, no matter how many shirts we give other people and how many things we give to other people and how many services we render, because personally we must have the thrill of being clean, and I don't care what else you could ever say about yourself. The greatest thing you could ever say is simply the fact that I'm clean, and nobody else is ever going to be able to make that proclamation for you because that's personal and you're the only one who knows. Well, I was raised in American Fork, which is down the road just a little ways, and you don't see it as often now because they built a freeway. But as you go through there, you might look off to your right if you're going to Salt Lake and to your left if you're coming home, and you'll see American Fork there. And it should be a glorious experience for you. At least it is for me. (laughs) And while I was growing up there, we had a a farm, and we used to like to play basketball between the chores, and we had our basket, so-called basket or hoop or goal, attached to the barn wall. And as we played basketball there, we played often, and it was nice playing when the ground was frozen, but because the cow also inhabited that area, it became... Not quite as pleasant to play there in the summer in the, in the, or in the spring, particularly, as the snow began to melt and so on. But it didn't stop us from playing because we were butting All-Americans, but it did kind of deter us from dribbling too much. <laughs> So as we played there near the barn, one day it occurred to us that part of the hay was gone from inside of the barn, and because part of the hay was gone, there was an area in there in which we felt like we could build our own little field house, and so we put a little hoop up on the wall, just big enough for regulation basketball to go through that hoop, and then we would practice in the barn, and I became quite adept at shooting up over the rafter and shooting long shot after long shot through that. It's hard to talk about and still be humble. I became so accurate there in the barn. (laughs) I'd practice hours on hours, and then my brother would come out and join me. And he, being older than me, uh, when we would play, he would not only serve as my opponent, but he would also serve as the referee and as the scorekeeper. And this made it rather difficult for me to defeat him, even though I felt that I was making more baskets. And at the conclusion of a game, he would announce to me the fact that he had won, which thing I highly disputed. And as he left for the house, he would shout back, I did win, and he would kind of laugh. And as he did so, I'd fly into one of the tantrums that I'd learned to fly into, being the youngest of nine children and highly persecuted as a boy. I (laughs) learned to protect myself by crying. I used to go to my mother crying, and she would call the other kids in and say, George is not the baby. You're the baby. You're always making him cry. And I'd stick my head out from behind her, and I'd say, that's right. (laughs) She used to spoil me a great deal, and... I'd come home from school, she'd make me a peanut butter sandwich, and some people would say, let him make his own. Mrs. Durant, you spoil him. I'd think, why don't you mind your own business? (laughs) I just never did mind being spoiled. She used to treat me that way, and when the people were gone, I'd say, the reason I like you to make me a peanut butter sandwich, Mom, is because when you make it, it tastes better. She would say, I'll just keep making it for you, George. And i just like to say, if you ever have a little child and just want to spoil him, I think he should feel all right to do that because he might turn out to be wonderful also. And, <laughs> and so the one, good thing about, the one good thing about my mother was she didn't have any money, and so she just had to spoil me with love. She used to hold me on her lap and run her fingers through my hair and tell me I was special. I'd think, well, why don't the basketball coach know I'm special. And I got to thinking, he does know I'm special, or else he wouldn't keep me on the bench near him all during the game. <laughs> but I wouldn't get on my mother's lap when I was a junior and senior in high school until I'd pull the drapes, and then I'd sit on her lap, and she'd tell me I was special, and I had a hard time realizing that. But I always suspected I was. And I knew she knew I was, and I know you are. But as I was playing basketball with that brother, he went in the house, and told me. That he had won and I was having a tantrum and I looked at the cow and the cow says don't look at me I can't even count I don't know <laughs> and so not knowing what else to do I discovered that he had left his newly purchased mitt baseball glove there and I took it with a mighty heave out the barn window it went and into the pig pen <laughs> and after having so done I made my way to the house and some minutes later he came to the house having been back to the barn to find his mitt. Finding it not there, he came to inquire of me if I knew where his mitt was. I said, Yes, I do know where it is. He said, Where is it? And I said, I tossed it in the pig pen. <laughs> he immediately went to the pig pen where he was able to retrieve his mitt. And he came back in the house holding it delicately between his thumb and his one finger. And the pig had not eaten the mitt, but he. <laughs> Had made it so that nobody else would ever want to touch it or even. And as he held it up before me, turned it out inside out and ruined, the mitt that he had just purchased a couple of days before, he asked me a question. He said, Now, George, are you happy? And from behind my mother, I said, Yes, I am. And the only Problem with that response was it was a lie because I was miserable, because I didn't want to ruin his mitt, because he just got it, and because I didn't want to cause anybody to feel bad, and because also I loved him, and I never did say for many years that I had told a lie on that occasion. But, brothers and sisters, as Alma told his adulterous son, Wickedness never was happiness. And I don't know how I could ever say anything so special as that. Wickedness never was happiness. And it never will be and it never could be. And if there's somebody who's wicked and they appear to be happy, then they're living a lie. Because you can't be happy in your wickedness. The Lord has said, And now, my son, all men are in a state, or nature, or would say in a carnal state, are in the gall of bitterness and in the bonds of iniquity. They are without God in the world, and they have gone contrary to the nature of God, therefore they are in a state contrary to the nature of happiness. And it's impossible for a man to be happy in his sins. And You might look at somebody and think he is, but if you were able to look deep down in his heart you could find that he hurts. Because you can't live in your sins. You can't have sins in your memory or in your present life that you haven't got rid of through repentance and be happy. It's impossible because God has spoken on that subject and he tells us it's a nature contrary to the nature of happiness. And therefore, the way to get to be happy is to repent. And I can't think of any greater motive for repenting than that. And I'd like to suggest that on our scale of 1 to 10, you just want to know if you're a 1 to 10 Christian, I'll ask you a question. Are you Where do you rate in ma- this matter called happiness? Are you... Number one in happiness. If you are, then you are unusual because it is hard to be perfectly happy in this life because the Lord has said in this life your joy is not full. And he goes on to say you won't have a fullness of joy until you're resurrected. And so there's all a little bit of a thirst in all of us. And if you're number one in happiness, perfectly happy, then you're different than I am because I still thirst for some things that I don't yet have. And I think that's the way life is. And as long as that's the case, then I can look forward to that time when I'm resurrected and get to be, if I can make it into the celestial kingdom where I'll have a fullness of joy. But if you're even number two in that, in happiness, then I'll tell you something, that correlates perfectly with your Christianity. And if you're number two in happiness, you're a number two Christian and you should work on getting to be a number one but I think it's a pretty big leap from number two to number one and therefore I just suggest and came here today feeling impressed after much prayer yesterday simply to give a message to repent and I'll do it if you will and we'll all do it together and we'll make our hearts clean and pure and if you want to know Nobody else can ever—you can't get a scientist to examine you to find out if you're happy, and you can't get a bunch of pollsters to take a poll to find out if you're happy. The only person who can answer the question whether or not you're happy is you, and the only way you can answer that you're happy is to be able to say to yourself, I'm clean, I've taken care of my sins, I've changed, and thus I know that I have taken advantage of the Atonement of Christ, and thus that's the real purpose of why Christ came. And as we go forth in life— It'd be nice if the Protestants were right that once you receive that glorious feeling in your heart where you want to sing the songs of redeeming love, if you were saved on August 6, 1964, wouldn't it be a blessing if that were true? And you could always say you were saved, but I stand up again and tell you that's not true, that it's possible. It says in the 20th section of the Doctrine and Covenant for a man who once had the feeling of singing the glorious and redeeming songs of love to fall from that. And it says in there it's possible, and I suggest it's not only possible, but it's also probable not to fall in one great fell swoop, but it's possible to fall just a little bit. Somebody asked me recently, George, what are you going to be when you grow up? I said, I don't know. I just like to grow up. Wouldn't it be something to grow up so that little things didn't knock you off balance? Some of you who get irritated over some stupid little thing, something somebody said or something somebody does. Why is it that the Lord or that we seem, and we don't have any disposition to do evil? It says in the the Book of Mormon, when Mosiah spoke to those people after they heard him speak, they had no disposition to do evil and they had the name of Christ written in their hearts. And What a blessing it is when you don't have any disposition to do evil. You just want to do good continually, but at the same time something sneaks up on you and you fall from this glorious perch where you thought you were living as a number, pretty low number Christian and all of a sudden you go right up to number ten and you start acting like a little kid again. What a blessing it would be if you could ever o- overcome those kind of things so you actually are in control of yourself and, therefore, I suggest to all of you, what are you going to be when you grow up? And Wouldn't it be a glorious thing to grow up to be a number one Christian? Just to be able to control. I remember once at Brigham City, Utah, when I was teaching seminary up there, the children were awake a good share of the night. They all had sort of the stomach flu, and any time any of my children ever cry at night, because I'm rather a pleasant fellow at home, I remember when they cry at night I always smile, and nudge Sister Marilyn, so that she can get up and attend to them. <laughs> what a that night they cried a good share of the night and the next morning it was early and I had an appointment early that morning and so I decided to just quietly sneak out of bed so that Marilyn could sleep on because she was now asleep as were all the children and I thought I'm capable of getting up and getting myself off and so I quietly got out of bed and I think that's a marvelous thing what I was doing there. As I got out of bed I went to shave and I felt good as I shaved and then I went to get a white shirt. and When I went to get the white shirt I looked in the usual place and there wasn't the white shirt. And I went to the clothes dryer where I was able to get a white shirt. And I took it to the ironing board where I ironed a shirt, white shirt, in the places you have to iron a shirt if you're going to wear a coat. And after, <laughs> after as I was ironing the shirt, I found out I wasn't quite as wonderful as I had been, and this kind of a feeling kept kept coming over me. Why isn't there a shirt? And incidentally, there's always been a shirt every other day. I just wanted to say that in defense of Maryland, but that day there wasn't a shirt, and therefore I was starting just not be as quite as fine a person as I had been when I first got up. And as I got through ironing the shirt I decided I would make myself breakfast and uh, I was going to make toast because I make really good toast. (laughs) And as I went to make the toast I looked in the usual place for the bread and there wasn't any bread. And I thought, why isn't there any bread? And I was becoming more and more upset and as I was in that condition I decided I'd make hot cakes. I know I love hot cakes and I know what goes in hotcakes. I was following the recipe, but as I looked at the clock I knew I had to hurry, and so I put the stuff in that I knew went went in, and after I got the hot cakes made, there I sat in a lonely kitchen on a more early morning hour, and as I was eating the hot cakes they tasted terrible. And my stomach was getting almost to be as upset as was my general feelings. And there I sat in the kitchen eating those poor hotcakes really upset. And I, just a few minutes before, I'd been a wonderful sort of guy, and now I was upset. And there's a, You have to show—you know, when you're all alone, there's no use getting upset. It's just a waste of energy to be upset when there's nobody there to show that you're upset to. And if there's somebody there, then, of course, the best way of all to show that you're upset is to be silent, you know, and not to talk. That's, a, that's number ten on the scale. That's the most cruel of all things, and when you do that then you, of course, fall way up even beyond number ten, Christian, because that's the most, I believe, the as cruel a thing as you can ever do, is just to go around and when people say, what's wrong, you say, what's the matter? you think, nothing's wrong, nothing's wrong. And you just act that way, and I suggest to you who do that that it, you know it's possible to fall from grace, because when you fall to that kind of a condition you've really fallen. But it's no use being silent, giving the silent treatment when there's nobody else around. And so I had to choose an alternative to that, and that was to bang around. And it's possible in the morning to really bang around. It's an excellent time to bang around when people are asleep. And so after having banged around sufficiently, I decided to go to where my coat was hanging in the bedroom closet. And I knew by sliding the door quickly across that I could cause one last bang on the other side. And when that had banged, I noticed out of the corner of my eye that Marilyn was now awake. And as I looked over at her. Now I knew I could switch to the silent treatment. <laughs> and as I did that, I got my coat out of the closet and put it on, and then with the silent treatment I just left the house without saying goodbye. And there I went out of the house, priesthood man, you know, uh, branch president. And people over at the church thought I was all right. It would be better to smoke than act that way, even though we don't smoke either. But I have a feeling that being ornery and being upset is a very high-priority kind of sin because I don't think they do that in the celestial kingdom. And if you have great pride in being ornery and you've always had a temper, I suggest to you that you're not a number one Christian, not in deed, nor in attitude, nor in heart, and your sins are still with you, and I hereby call those of you who are ornery to repentance, to be pleasant. Why not? And you can do it. I think the most exciting idea that ever has been or ever will be is that people can change. If a man can quit smoking, a guy can quit being ornery. What a blessing it is to live in a house where nobody's ornery. Where everybody goes around somewhat pleasant. Now it's possible to be ornery on some days because you got a headache and that. But I'm talking about the general principle of being ornery almost all the time. And I think you can even be pleasant when there's some things going wrong. And I think that's the test of you. And I suggest, what are you going to be when you grow up? And I suggest that's one way to grow up. And I went out of the house that day, went down to my office where I had to pick up some papers to go to the meeting. And as I usually do, I knelt down in the office that day to say my prayer. And as I knelt to pray, I was not very happy, and the only thing I could think to say was, Heavenly Father, bless Marilyn and help her to have a happy day. And He said to me, Why don't you go bless her? You're just closer to her right now than I am. And I heard that in my mind, and I couldn't think of anything else to say to the Lord. So I said, Amen, and got up off my knees and stood there having to make a great decision. There are some decisions that are made that have so much to do with everything. And I just got myself together and I got in my car. And as I drove home, I prepared a speech. And I got that speech word perfect. And when I got home, I stood there in front of my beloved wife and I looked into her eyes and I gave that speech, which is probably the most significant speech that a person can ever give. Because as I looked at her, I said, I'm sorry. And it just thrills my soul to hear those words because that's the doorway to everything. If you can just have enough courage to be able to say I'm sorry and demean it with every fiber of your being and then support it with actions that prove you were sincere, what a blessing it is to be able to say you're sorry and thus take yourself back from being a number one or number ten Christian and take yourself way down the scale and really become somebody because you've got enough courage to say you're sorry and really act like it and change your behavior. And as I said, I'm sorry, then that led to another speech that I hadn't had in mind until I said, I'm sorry. And the second speech went something like this, and I love you. And then there was something that followed that, which wasn't exactly a speech. (laughs) (laughs) But after that, I said to her, I hope you have a happy day. And she did. And isn't that a wonderful story? (laughs) I can't think of anything better that I could ever say about myself than the day I came home and made things right with my beloved wife. What a blessing it is to do something like that. And that day, as I walked out of the house the second time, I was a priesthood man, a man of God, a man who was clean, a man who was pure, a man who had made things right. And as I walked out in the world, I had hope. And when you got hope, you got everything. Hope's the great thing to have. And hope, the Book of Mormon tells us, that, uh, if you're in despair, you, you, where, let me find this when I tore some pages out of uh, And if you have no hope, you must needs be in despair. And despair cometh because of iniquity. Now there's some people in despair because somebody got hurt or killed or somebody's sick, but some people are in despair just because they need to change their ways. Some people get a hopeless feeling, and the reason they get a hopeless feeling is because of their iniquities. They need to get out of their rut. They need to get moving on. Missionaries who come home and year after year don't get married need to move on. They need to, they they could fall into a position of despair. And I'm not trying to be funny. I'm telling you the ultimate truth that if you don't get up and change your ways, you're going to stay in despair. Now nobody can change you. There's nobody who can pull the curtains and let hope come into the stage and kick despair off except you. And it's possible for men to change and change their ways by going to the Lord and telling him as I told my wife and the great speech you can give to the Lord but it must be done sincerely and it must come after considerable thought and prayer. Just go to him and tell him you're sorry and you want to change your ways and you want to come back home and you want to be back with your father and you want to be what you ought to be. I had a son I have many I uh, had one Sunday, we were going to have family home evening right after church. One Sunday night, that was before the church proclaimed that Monday night was to be family home evening. And so right after church, we started our family home evening on our back lawn. I'd like to announce another thing about me I have family home evening every Monday night. Last night, we watched the Olympics. <laughs> I can't think of anything I'd sooner do with my family when the Olympics are on and sit there and watch those beautiful girls do those things that they do and those gymnastic things. You can take all the rest of the Olympics. But leave me that. I think that, that's just—well, oh, any. Well, that's beside the point. <laughs> well, there we were sitting, all of us, a dance, and my one little girl made some banana cream pies, and we were even able to afford some ice cream, and we sat there watching the Olympics after we had a mighty opening prayer. And I was able to tell the families in the middle of the Olympics, as they were kind of teasing me, because they often tease me, but I was able to tell them, I'm so glad to be your dad. I just love being here, and my son's here, and he's going to Tokyo, Japan, and he's out there behind those lights somewhere, and he writes me letters, and I, when I get a letter from my son, I'm so happy. It's just good to be Anyway, we're going to have family home evening out back. And when we got out there, there were just as we went back there, there were some kids out in front playing in a big cardboard barrel. One kid would get in the cardboard barrel, and the other kids would push him, and I'd say that's pretty good competition for family home evening, and so our kids came to family home evening, however because and we were having family home evening. One of the little boys raised his hand and said, I want to go in the house. He had a reason for going in the house with which I couldn't argue, and so he took off to <laughs> go in the house. And While he was in the house, our family kept going, but after a while it was, we knew he wasn't coming back, and so we closed our family home evening rather quickly. I went out and got him out of the cardboard barrel. As we headed back toward the house, I was patient and good and kind. I suggested to him that we hadn't had family home evening after he left because we didn't have a family. And as we moved along, he says, that You never let me play. And I said, That's all you do, that play. And we started shouting at each other, and we came in the house, and I was walking real fast, but he was able to keep up with me because I was dragging him. <laughs> and as we got to the house, he went down the hall, and as he went down the hall, I finally got to his bedroom, and there with a mighty whack on his seat, I opened the door and thrust him into the room and told him to stay in there. And I didn't hit him hard enough to hurt him, but I hit him hard enough to hurt him because, you know... I told him to stay in that room and I got in a rocking chair outside of the room and I wondered why does it have to be this way? Why do these kind of problems have to come up? I wished he'd come out. I wished I could make it right with him. I don't want a door closed between me and my boy. I want all the doors open. And I wanted him to come out, but I didn't know how to go in and get him out without going back on the things I'd said, and so I sat there in a rocking chair, hoping to the Lord that something good had happened. And after I'd been sitting there for what seemed like quite a while the door flew open, went clear down and banged against the other wall and he came out and he said, I'm coming out. <laughs> And with the agility of a great athlete, I bounded over to where he was, whirled him around, hit him again, said, I said, stay in there. (laughs) And so he went back to his room, and we were back in our original positions, and after some time of waiting, and the door opened again, only this time it just opened a little teeny ways, and there was just enough room for a little teeny boy to be seen. And as he looked through the door, tears were coming down his cheeks. He was still crying, but he was crying differently because there's more than one way to cry. And he was crying the right kind of tears now and as he looked out at me he gave that great speech because between his tears as he's able to get himself able to speak he said dad i'm sorry and i said son so am i and he came over by me and i was just the right size in a rocking chair to put my hand around his shoulder and i says boy when you left we just didn't have a family i said do you ever realize how much good you could do if If you always stayed in the right place and did the right things because you're really a special boy and someday you'll be a missionary and all these things and you ought to start to learn now to do those things you say you're going to do. And I told him all these things and the reason I told him all these things is because the Holy Ghost was there and when you got the Holy Ghost and one of your family members and you're talking, it's a blessed experience. And I talked to him and finally decided he is only a little boy and he couldn't understand everything I was saying and so I decided to let him go. And I whirled him around and whacked him again just as hard as I'd whacked him before, only this time it didn't hurt, and I said, You go ahead and go play. And he walked across the room, and he was just about to disappear down the hall, and he stopped, and he turned back, and he looked at me, and he said, Dad, I don't want to go play. I want to stay with you. And he came over, and I took him up in my arms, and the two of us rocked back and forth together, and I told him how much I loved him. And I don't know how to tell you any better than that, that once you find the Lord, you don't want to go play. You don't want to play. You don't want to play in a way where you get dirty. You don't want to go out and do those things that make you dirty, not after you found the Lord. You have no disposition to do evil. You want to sing the songs of redeeming love today. You can't live on yesterday's happiness today. You've got to go out and find it again. You've got to go out and do those things that make you clean and pure today because it's possible for a man to fall. But it's also possible for a man to come back quick. And some get so far away they start to say, oh, this business about sin and repentance and all that. Save that for somebody else. We don't believe it. Well, that's what Christ came to teach. Is that a man can repent and get himself clean through being baptized and having the Holy Ghost and by everlastingly praying for the strength and having the grace of God come into his soul to give him the power to be good. So that you have no disposition to do evil. So that you want to have the name of Christ written in your heart. So that people that know you best love you most. And when somebody wants somebody to come and bless their child, they call upon you because through the years they found out you've got power because you're pure. And so I suggest that If you want to be a number one Christian, which I do, you've got to be clean, and then you've got to go out and get off the path and let people go by and help them along. And When you do those two things, then you come close, and someday when you're resurrected your joy will be full, and Christ will stand before the Father, as it says in the 45th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, and he'll be your advocate, and he'll plead your cause. It tells us in the Doctrine and Covenants also that the thing he wants to be able to say about you first and foremost is, This person's clean. And when he's able to say that, then you're a candidate for the celestial kingdom of our God. And he'll say, Come on in. And once you've been in the presence of God, you know that, like my boy, as he was with his father, when you're with your father, and when you're in the circle of his love, and when you know that you can pray to him and you feel good about yourself, all despair flies away. And there's hope, even though there's problems from day to day. But as long as you got hope, as long as you got a dream, as long as you know where you're going, you can put up with a lot. And you will have to put up with a lot because there's a lot to put up with. But you won't be knocked over by it. And if you feel yourself toppling, you can just say, I'm sorry, and you can come back. And that's the way it is. And may the Lord bless us all to be number one Christians i was once in a front room and my little boy was hiding behind a chair and i knew where he was hiding because his feet were sticking out i said i think he's in the bookcase and i removed some of the books i said he's not there i think he's in the lamp i turned the lamp off and on i said he's not there i said i think he's in the stereo i lifted the lid and said he's not there i said in a loud voice when i was over near where he was i cannot find him i guess i will have to go buy an ice cream cone all by myself and with that he bounded up, and in full glory he said, Daddy, I have found myself. <laughs> and it's only through repentance you can find yourself. One of my friends was wrestling with his little boys on the floor, and he became tired before they did, and so he acted as though he were dead and in order to get some rest. And, uh, on the floor there, the two boys became very concerned about the state of their father. And so the older of the two boys, not knowing what else to do, lifted up his daddy's eyelid and there then looked at his brother with quite a bit of reassurance says, "He's, He's still in there. <laughs> and as for us, we're still in there. And I suggest to you that you do those things which will make you clean. And until you've done that, it doesn't matter much what else you do because you're going nowhere as far as becoming a number one Christian, which is what you have to become or get to become, I should say, to be able to return to God's presence because no unclean thing ever has been or ever will be there. The scriptures are clear on that. I promise you I'll use this glorious principle of repentance and I humbly pray that the Lord will bless us all because I suggest in closing that we are strong candidates for the celestial kingdom. I have a feeling we could make it if we can just keep ourselves clean and pure, and if we learn to use the words, I'm sorry, and keep coming back before the sun goes down. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.